Does it, does it feel to you as though the cost of almost everything is rising rapidly? From, yeah, from food to utilities to fuel to building supplies to housing, the cost of everything seems to be going rapidly up. At the same time, though, it would also be true to say that some things, as always, are absolutely free. Things like fresh air, things like kindness, things like taking a walk, things like laughter, things like the NHS at the point of need. Some things are rapidly rising, other things stay completely free. But there's one thing, there's one thing where the cost hasn't changed for the last 2,000 years. And paradoxically, it's both absolutely free and of the utmost cost. You see, becoming a follower of Jesus, receiving salvation, eternal life, is absolutely free, isn't it? That's the whole point of what Jesus came to do for us. You cannot earn his favor. You can only receive it. Paul writes in a letter called Ephesians, he says all sorts of things about this free gift, including this, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. How do you get right with God? What can I pay to get this? What must I do? Absolutely nothing. It is completely and utterly free. And that's good news, isn't it? But at the very same time, as we'll read in a moment, becoming a follower of Jesus, receiving salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, while being absolutely and utterly a free gift, Jesus says will also cost you absolutely everything. So this morning we're continuing our series looking at, at counter-cultural Jesus. We're looking at 10 places in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus where Jesus confronts the culture of his day and equally confronts the culture of our day. And today we're looking at this. Knowing him. Some of you are over familiar with them. If you've never heard them before, I hope you'll be shocked by them. They are completely countercultural. They are extraordinarily demanding. They're shocking. I'm going to read this from Matthew chapter 16. From that time, which we'll get to why it says from that time in a moment. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Well, Peter, one of the disciples, took him aside, began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. 
Well, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. That's a dramatic passage. It comes at a dramatic point in this gospel account. Some of those words I think are really shocking. It's the, it's the first of three times in Matthew's account when Jesus speaks of his suffering and his death. It was something he was beginning to help his disciples to get an idea about. That's why it says he began to talk to them about these things. Elsewhere, later on, they have the, the, you know, the Last Supper, and he says in that, this is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. There are clues in what Jesus is trying to help his disciples to get here. He also said later on that he had come to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus wasn't hiding where he was going. But despite his teaching, despite Old Testament passages that they knew well that spoke of a suffering saviour, the disciples never, ever got it. How they responded later on to his arrest and his trials, to his death, to his resurrection, show that they never, ever were able to grasp what was he talking about, suffering and death and dying. The disciples had a different idea in mind of this King Jesus. They had in mind an earthly triumph. They had in mind restoration of a physical kingdom. They had power and prestige and wealth and well-being and the overthrowing of the secular Roman power in mind. That's the sort of king and the sort of kingdom they were anticipating. A suffering one? A dying one? And even after his resurrection, <laughs> they've, they've finally got it because they've seen it that he's risen from the dead. But even after their resurrection, their expectations of what the kingdom was going to look like are made clear in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Then they gathered round him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still anticipating a physical, geographical, restored kingdom under King Jesus. But the kingdom Jesus is building is uniquely countercultural because he is a uniquely countercultural king. So, verse 21 just didn't compute. 
He began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. It meant zero to them. He might as well have been speaking in English in that time. They wouldn't have understood a word of it. And so Peter intervenes. He can't cope with Jesus and this talk of what seems to be defeat and suffering and death So Peter intervenes, and with his huge wisdom, of course, he decides to take Jesus aside from the the 12, 12 disciples, and he begins to rebuke Jesus. That sounds pretty bold, don't you think? Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter's really, I mean, Peter, we know, has a big mouth. Really, he's just, he's probably speaking up for what all the others are thinking anyway. And he's put his foot right in it again. He's very strong. The word Matthew uses for rebuking Jesus is the same word that Matthew also uses for Jesus rebuking the wind and the waves and elsewhere rebuking a demon. Peter is not holding back here. He's really strong. Jesus, shut it. I might translate it. (laughs) But we can sympathize, or we should sympathize somewhat with Peter, lest we become pride and think we'd be any better, considering particularly the dialogue that's happened immediately preceding this bit. You see, Jesus has been going around. He's in Pisidian Antioch. And he says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? Not that he didn't know. He was curious to know what they'd heard. And they say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead, etc., etc. And then he says, who do you say I am? Which is always the more pointed question. Who do you say Jesus is? And Peter, as revealed by God to him, says, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. No wonder that Peter is confused. This is the Messiah. This is the son of the living God. This is the one of whom the prophets spoke for centuries. This is the one on whom we've seen the dove come down. We've heard the voice of heaven confirm him. Suffering? Dying? What are you talking about, Jesus? That can't possibly be part of our future story. We're on the way to success, not suffering. But though Peter, in verse 16, back in verse 16, has understood by God's revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, he's not understood what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And so Peter's naive, short-sighted rebuke is met with the Lord's counter-rebuke. In verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, I mean, these are strong words. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
Peter's words in verse 16 were commended as being revealed by God. But Jesus now says that Peter's words in verse 23 are condemned as expressing satanic thoughts and temptations. You see, Jesus saw in Peter's temptation, in Peter's words, a stumbling block. How quickly you can fall. A few verses before, Peter is the rock on which he's going to build his church. And now that rock has become a stumbling block, a hazard. Stumbling block is an English translation of a Greek word behind this, scandalon. And scandalon is a something that's placed in the way that would trip one up, an obstacle, a hindrance. It can mean that. But more precisely, it's a snare. It's something designed to catch an animal. In fact, very technically, it's like the little piece of wood that would be hanging over the trap that if the animal dislodges it, the trap comes down. If Jesus falls for this satanic temptation and thought, then he's trapped in the devil's plans not to see him go to the cross. Peter, that is a satanic idea. I completely reject it, Jesus says, in case it causes me to stumble or become trapped by looking for an easier way out of my Father's will. You see, Jesus is set. He has set his face that whatever it costs, he will obey his Father's will. And he knows, though these disciples cannot grasp it at the moment at all, that the way he's got to walk is the way of suffering and death and resurrection. And so this extraordinary words of Jesus, displaying just what a countercultural Messiah, leader, hero he is, becomes the third occasion for Jesus to accept explicitly talk about the cost it will be to anyone who wants to follow him. Previously, Matthew 8 and Matthew 10 have recorded similar words. And I would have to say to you that these are some of Jesus' most uncomfortable countercultural statements in the entire gospel record. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In other words, with what Jesus has just said and what he's now saying, he's saying this, not only am I going to suffer and die, but Peter, so are you, and so is anyone else who wants to follow me. I'm on the road to suffering and death and resurrection. Peter, you too are on the road to suffering and death and resurrection. And anyone who wants to come and follow me is also going to be on the road to suffering and death and resurrection. Here's a question. When you became a Christian... 
I wonder, did anyone tell you about cost? Did anyone tell you about self-denial? Did anyone tell you about cross-bearing? Now, you might want to say, Tim, <laughs> steady on a minute. We're trying to help people get into the kingdom. <laughs> we're, not trying to, we're not trying to put them off. Maybe that can come a bit later. Maybe someone did to you. Maybe someone was honest enough to say, come and follow Jesus. It is the best thing you could ever do. It is the most fulfilling life you could ever have. It is the life full of peace and joy and eternal hope. Maybe they were honest enough to also say, and you're going to suffer. This is going to be incredibly hard. I wonder what ticket you came in on. I went to the 1983 Cricket World Cup final at Lords, And as we were going in, it's a long time ago, but I still remember, as we were going in, the West Indies were playing the Indians. And the West Indians, still today a bit, but, uh, but um, particularly back then, 40 years ago, the West Indians were cricket nuts, and they were brilliant. And so loads of West Indians living in London and probably flew in, whatever, were trying to get into this game at Lord's Cricket Ground. And as I came in, I still remember hearing this West Indian came in, and he presented to the guy at the ticket office his ticket. And the guy said, sir, that's your bus pass. <laughs> he was so desperate to get in. He was trying to fool the ticket officer with his bus pass. You can't get in on the wrong ticket. Let me tell you, maybe no one's ever told you to become a Christian is the single best decision you could ever make. Let me tell you this, you must come in on the right ticket. I know that it will cost you everything. So there are two terms Jesus uses here to describe the life of all those who want to follow him. He says this, firstly, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. I mean, I don't think, he doesn't get much more countercultural than that. We live in a day of blatant self-expression, not self-denial, but it's self-denial that Jesus calls his followers to to turn our backs on self-interest. Deny means to strongly reject. It's the same word used of Peter's denials. Jesus says to Peter, you will deny me three times. A little bit later on in Matthew's Gospel, and we know from that account, Peter very, very strongly, adamantly said he never had anything to do with Jesus. We're not to stand at 90 degrees with self-interest, but to strongly, adamantly refuse self-interest if we're to be able to follow Jesus. Where is following Jesus leading you to deny yourself? Where is following Jesus leading you 
to deny yourself. To say no to yourself. To say no to selfish instincts. Maybe financially. Maybe relationally. Maybe occupationally. Maybe sexually. Maybe reputationally. Where are you being led to deny yourself in purity, in time, in loving, in forgiving, in serving? Perhaps we could even say this. If there's no self-denial, can it really be Jesus that you're following? Jesus secondly said, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross. See, it was perfectly clear what was about to happen to someone who was carrying the horizontal beam of the cross on which they would die. Take up their cross has become so downplayed in our culture. It means, well, we all have our cross to bear. What's that? Oh, I've got a difficult neighbour. Yeah, right. Well, I've got some health issues. We've all got our cross to bear. Nonsense. It needed no imagination on the part of Jesus' disciples. You see, they lived under Roman rule. The Romans crucified tens of thousands of people. Criminals. Those they deemed to be a danger to the Roman state. It was a brutal execution, such that no Roman himself was allowed to be executed. It was designed to maximize suffering and serve as the most public and humiliating reminder, don't you disobey the state as well. Cross-carrying was a one-way street of pain of suffering, of humiliation, of death, a street that Jesus would walk very soon himself. John chapter 19 records this, carrying his own cross, probably the horizontal beam, he went out to the place of the skull. There they crucified him. Now, this is first literal and then metaphorical. For these disciples themselves and then for many around the world through the centuries, these have been very literal words. Many of the disciples were executed for their faith. Around the world, even today, many people are executed for being followers of Jesus. But whether or not you will be literally executed for your faith, these two things are still to be understood with the utmost seriousness. That following Jesus means surrendering everything. See, that's, that's the Christian's basic position anyway, isn't it? 
How do you become a Christian? What's the door to becoming a Christian? Well, it's the free gift of God in Jesus Christ, yes? But there's another way to express it as well, and it's this. It's to leave all hope behind of any self-salvation, surrender everything and say, God, if I haven't got you, I am utterly damned. The Christian begins with utter surrender. And the Christian continues with utter surrender because he hasn't joined a club. He's joined the family of Almighty God. And if he is Almighty God, then we bow in surrender to him. We are not to use him to meet all our wants. Praise him for the graces he gives us and the blessings he gives us. But our basic position is, you are God. So I come in in surrender, and I continue in a position of surrender. And we follow Jesus, too, who came to do nothing but his Father's will. That's the model we have. That's the one we're following. One who said, even under the most intense agony and struggle to be obedient, yet not my will, Father, but your will be done. That's the one we're following, becoming like. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor during the Second World War. And he was hanged at the end of the war in 1945 for his part in plans to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He was a Christian who'd made that decision. He was arrested and hanged. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a whole load of things. His most famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, included this, which I think is possibly his most famous line. When Christ calls a man or woman, he bids him come and die or surrender. You see, the cross-bearing Savior calls cross-bearing disciples who have surrendered everything. Following Jesus means surrendering all. And following Jesus will involve many deaths. See, it may not require your head being chopped off, you being shot, you being crucified for being a Christian, but make no bones about it. Faithful following of Jesus will require many deaths. Dying to self, you see, is both a decisive position. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The I doesn't matter. I've turned my back. I'm denying self and selfish interests. It's a decisive position. But it's also a continual stance that involves continual dying to self. It's a little bit like if I may say, loving my wife. Hang on. It was decisive and it is continual. I decisively chose to love my wife 30 years ago, 32 years ago. 32 years ago. 
and two months, just to prove I do know what I'm talking about. <laughs> 32 years and two months ago, it was a decisive act. But it involves daily death to self-interest. I can only truly go on loving her daily if I am also dying. Loving requires dying, which is another way of putting what Jesus is saying here. So Luke, in his account of this event, adds a word, just one word, but it's very interesting. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Daily deaths like these. Daily deaths like obeying Jesus' teaching. Doesn't that feel like, that's really hard sometimes, denying self. Many deaths like laying down my life for others, like loving those who've wronged me, of deeply painful forgiveness, that's a mini death. The mini death of entitlements foregone, the mini death of sin resisted because Jesus is better. One guy wrote this, it's repetitive, but it makes the point. When my flesh yearns for some prohibited thing, I must die. When called to do something I don't want to do, I must die. When I wish to be selfish and serve no one, I must die. When shattered by hardships that I despise, I must die. When wanting to cling to wrongs done against me, I must die. When enticed by allurements of the world, I must die. When wishing to keep besetting sin secret, I must die. When wants that are borderline needs are left, unmet, I must die. When dreams that are good seem shoved aside, I must die. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. John Piper said, daily Christian living is daily Christian dying. Are you doing any? Are you dying? that you might live with him? We've got to ask a question. I've, <laughs> I've just got one question. Why would one deny oneself rather than express oneself? Well, why would one choose daily dying over daily ease? Is following Jesus just an exercise in masochism, finding pleasure in pain? Anyway, didn't Jesus say he'd come to give life in all its fullness? This is where we need the words of verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. This is the ultimate cost-benefit analysis. Jesus in Luke's gospel explicitly says it, before you follow me, weigh it up. He says, if you're going to build a tower, wouldn't you work out if you can afford it? If you're a king going off to war, wouldn't you work out, have I got enough troops to beat that army? Jesus is, it's funny how, how upfront Jesus is. You want to follow me? Tell you what, have a think about it first. Weigh it up. Ponder it. This is the ultimate cost-benefit analysis. Why deny yourself? 
Why carry your cross and follow Jesus? Because, verse 25, the gain far outweighs the pain. Hebrews tells us this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he go through with suffering and death in Jerusalem? For the joy set before him, for seeing his father again, for seeing millions brought into his family, for seeing billions justified by his death and raised through his resurrection. And what is it for us as well? It is the same thing for the joy set before us. We endure the tiny bit of suffering and pain for following him that we get. So verse 27 here, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done, what they've done with Jesus. Let me tell you, any little bit of suffering in this life may seem really heavy, and I'm not despising a thing of it, but the weight of glory that's going to be ours will so surpass it that though it feels big now, it will feel tiny in comparison with all that we've gained when we're in his presence perfectly forever. I hear there's a a real revival going on in Iran One Christian alive at the moment in Iran said this, and I don't say this lightly or flippantly. They said this, a Christian in Iran, when we walk outside, we really don't care if we get arrested. We are not upset if we get arrested. What is 50 years in prison compared to eternity with Jesus. That's amazing. Let me tell you, that's deeply provoking to me and I hope to you. It's someone who's heard the words of Jesus. If anyone wants to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And they found that all the pain is outweighed by the present and the future gain. This is a very countercultural word. Sadly, it's a very counter Christian culture word. Here's what I'd like us to do I'd just like us to do something about this. I need to do something about this. We're going to sing a song in a moment. We're all going to stay seated. I'm not going to put any pressure on you at all. We just need to do something with these words of Jesus. When you feel ready to do so, I'd just like you to stand where you are as an act of surrender to Jesus of self-denial, of picking up the cross and following him, whatever the cost. And for you, 
It might just be generally. You might not be aware of something specific that I need to let go of and deny myself in, but I just want to say again today, Jesus, I'm surrendering to you, my King. Well, you might know that there is something specific and that if you don't turn your back on it, you will never, you'll never be able to follow Jesus because you've got this tug and this pull, whatever it might be. So specifically, you might want to stand and say, Jesus, I surrender this. And I wonder if there's anyone today who's here who's not yet a follower of Jesus. And I'm going to encourage you to stand as well as a first step of saying, Jesus, I haven't got it all sorted yet, but I want to follow you. It'll be the best decision you've ever made and the hardest decision you've ever made. Holy Spirit, please will you just come? You are here. We haven't got to ask you to come. You please just make your presence known in each of our hearts, in each of our minds. You are an extraordinary Savior, Jesus, that you should suffer and die and not flinch from it. Now, Lord, make us, help us to be those disciples, those followers who will deny ourselves in favor of you and will pick up our cross because we know we died to self and we are dying to self so that we can follow you. So we're going to sing a song. If anyone beats me to stand up, well done, because I'm going to stand pretty darn quick because I need to surrender. There's no pressure. I just know it's helpful to do something. So maybe when we sung this song, wherever you're up to, whatever your thing is, general, specific, or a first-time decision to follow Jesus as we sing, please will you just stand and use these words to surrender it all to Jesus for the first time or again.